restored, denounced by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and defended by white supremacist David Duke. U.S. Attorney General-designate John Ashcroft was widely disparaged for having called Lee a patriot. We've got to stand up and speak in this respect, Ashcroft had written, or else we'll be taught that Lee and other Confederate leaders were giving their lives, subscribing their sacred fortunes and their honor to some perverted agenda. One thing that can be said for Lee is that he would have welcomed none of these pronouncements. If the self-effacing patrician could have known that his face would live on for so long as a quasi-religious, recurrently divisive symbol, it might have made him moan, as he did after sending thousands of men to be cut to ribbons at Gettysburg. Too bad. Too bad. Oh, too bad. He was one of the few great men of whom it can be said that his sense of humor was rooted in genuine, if in fact far from simple or serene, humility. The most sublime word, Lee said, was duty. In 1860 he wrote to Robert E. Lee, Jr., who was starting college, You must be frank in the world. Frankness is the child of honesty and courage. Say just what you mean to do on every occasion and take it for granted you mean to do right. Never do anything wrong to make a friend or keep one. The man who requires you to do so is dearly purchased at a sacrifice. Deal kindly but firmly with all your classmates. You will find it the policy which wears best. Above all, do not appear to others what you are not. Did he speak in such tones to himself? He was the last avatar, wrote Edmund Wilson approvingly, of classical antique virtue, at once aristocratic and republican. But he was also a man. And isn't it true, as Montgomery Clift said in the role of Robert E. Lee Pruitt in From Here to Eternity, ain't nothing the matter with a soldier that ain't the matter with everybody else. We may think we know Lee because we have a mental image gray. Not only the uniform, the mythic horse, the hair and beard, but the resignation with which he accepted dreary burdens that offered neither pleasure nor advantage. In particular, the Confederacy, a cause of which he took a dim view until he went to war for it. He did not see right and wrong in tones of gray, and yet his moralizing could generate a fog, as in a letter from the front to his invalid wife. You must endeavor to enjoy the pleasure of doing good. That is all that makes life valuable. All right. But then he adds, When I measure my own by that standard, I am filled with confusion and despair. His own hand probably never drew human blood, nor fired a shot in anger. And his only civil war wound was a faint scratch on the cheek from a sharpshooter's bullet but many thousands of men died quite horribly in battles where he was the dominant, fiery spirit, and most of the casualties were on the other side. If we take as a given Lee's granitic conviction that everything is God's will, however, he was born to lose. He was usually kinder than most great men, but in even the most sympathetic versions of his life story, he comes across as a bit of a stick, certainly compared with his scruffy nemesis, Ulysses S. Grant. 
his zany, ferocious right arm, Stonewall Jackson, and the dashing eyes of his army, Jeb Stuart. For these men, the Civil War was just the ticket. Lee, however, has come down in history as too fine for the bloodbath of 1861 to 65. As an icon, he has enabled Americans of the South and also of the North to feel that somehow the American family was too decent to have brought upon itself four years of domestic carnage. To efface the squalor and horror of the war, we have the image of Abraham Lincoln freeing the slaves, and we have the image of Robert E. Lee nobly putting down his sword and standing selflessly for reconciliation. Both of those images have undergone reassessment. For many contemporary Americans, Lee is at best the moral equivalent of Hitler's brilliant field marshal, Erwin Rommel, who, however, turned against Hitler, as Lee never did against Jefferson Davis, who, to be sure, was no Hitler. But they haven't gone away. Can we recast Lee in terms more edifying in this century? One problem is that Lee's life didn't fit him. He appears to have been too fine for his childhood, for his education, for his profession, for his marriage, and for the Confederacy. Not according to him. According to him, he was not fine enough. For all his audacity on the battlefield, he accepted rather passively one raw deal after another, bending over backward for everyone from Jefferson Davis to James McNeil Whistler's mother. By what can we know him? The works of a general are battles, campaigns, and usually memoirs. The engagements of the Civil War shape up more as bloody muddles than as commanders' chess games. For a long time during the war, old Bobby Lee, as he was referred to worshipfully by his troops and nervously by the foe, had the greatly superior Union forces spooked. But a century and a third of analysis and counter-analysis has resulted in no core consensus as to the genius or the folly of his generalship. And he wrote no memoir. He wrote personal letters, a discordant mix of flirtation, joshing, lyrical touches, and stern religious adjuration. And he wrote official dispatches that are so impersonal and generally unself-serving as to seem above the fray. He also wrote one strange parable, which had come to him in a dream. Grant finally wore down Lee's ingenious military defenses, but he didn't crack his facade. There, at the end, stood Lee at Appomattox, too fine to represent defeat. In 1959, two years after citing Lee as a touchstone, Robert Penn Warren, who had written a biography of John Brown and a novel whose central character was inspired by Huey Long, grumbled, Who cares about Robert E. Lee? Now there's a man who's smooth as an egg. Turn him around this primordial perfection. You see, he has no story. You can't just say what a wonderful man he was, and that you know he had some chaotic something inside because he's human, but you can't get at it. Maybe in this century, after monumentalism has given way to chaos theory and obsession with the self, we can at last figure out how to care humanly about the self that Robert E. Lee was at such pains to deny. The only way to get inside him, perhaps, is by edging fractally around the record of his life to find spots where he comes through. 
by holding up next to him some of the fully realized characters. Grant, Jackson, Stewart, his father, Light Horse Harry Lee, John Brown, with whom he interacted. And by subjecting to contemporary skepticism certain concepts, honor, gradual emancipation, divine will, upon which he unreflectively founded his identity. Then there are minor but provocative matters like his feet, a peculiar instance of misspelling, his pet hen, his enigmatic pussyism joke. For all that he tends to bring out a certain solemnity, even in discussions of his humor, he was capable of larky jocularity in the oddest connections and the darkest of times. If in considering his sad life we strive for too consistent a tone, we miss some of its jangly resonance. As he would say to his children when he was at his most intimate with them, no tickling, no story. He wasn't always gray. Until war aged him dramatically, his sharp dark brown eyes were complemented by black hair, ebon and abundant, as his doting biographer Douglas Southall Freeman puts it, with a wave that a woman might have envied, a robust black mustache, a strong full mouth and chin unobscured by any beard, and dark mercurial brows. He was not one to hide his looks under a bushel. His heart, on the other hand, the heart he kept locked away, as Stephen Vincent Benet proclaimed in John Brown's body, from all the picklocks of biographers. Accounts by people who knew him give the impression that no one knew his whole heart, even before it was broken by the war. Perhaps it broke many years before the war.